Thank you, gentlemen. I echo Gary's thoughts. Sometimes you just feel like you want to just keep singing, especially those great truths of the faith. It's just good to sing together and now continue our worship together by opening up the Word. So grab your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Romans. Romans 5. I echo also, Gary, in welcoming visitors. If you're visiting with us today, it's good to have you. And look in front of you if you don't have a copy of God's Word. You'll see one there. Follow along with us. Romans 5. That's where we are in our study. Well, in the beginning, there was peace. There was peace with God in the beginning. Peace, which was man and woman in the presence of, made right with God. A dwelling with God in the garden, the peace of harmonious, unfettered access to God. Hard for us to comprehend when we read Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? Man and woman in the garden in that peace, and as you know, knew no shame. Then peace was broken, violently, quickly, tragically. Hostility was unleashed, enmity replaced with peace, or enmity replaced peace, I should say. The devil entered... You know what happened. The devil tempted, man and woman fell, and war ensued. To be sure, the onset of war was no surprise to God. Of course, it was within his decree. As such, by the mercy of God toward man, it was not the end of peace. Peace would be gone for a time, but not completely. The restoration of peace was promised almost immediately after war broke out. Listen to God express that. Listen to Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Amazing. The agent of chaos and enmity, God promised Satan's end in God's plan for peace's return. That return to peace, that return to the garden, if you will, however, was a long way off. In the interim, God's plan was rescue, to rescue the rebels, to reclaim the warmongers. Adam and Eve's descendants, all born in sin, each a transgressor in practice. God slowly but mark it certainly in the divine word unveiled his plan to reclaim them to restore the redeemed, the cursed men and women, the chaotic cosmos, to restore it to peace. The restoration plan, of course, as we just read, was through the seed of the woman, the seed who would be the peacemaker to come. However, man and woman continued to prove their bent for chaos and confusion. Crying out for peace with their tongue, Genesis 4, 26. But all the while making war and carrying out evil continually, Genesis 6, verse 9. Yet God's plan for peace remained unchanged in spite of mankind's thirst for war. 
Each time God brought in word, brought a picture, a pointer of that coming peace, and yet mankind all the more working to break it. Cosmic preservation and coming peace was promised by the sign of the bow in the sky. Yet as the catastrophic floodwaters receded, Genesis 8, and earthly peace returned, was only to give way to tower construction and rebels seeking their own name, Genesis 11. National deliverance, coming political peace, was promised through one nation, Exodus 19. Yet as God chose a nation for Himself and redeemed them from slavery to peace with Him, they soon chose instead war and disruption, bowing to an idol, Exodus 32. In that nation's history, there was a constant turning to chaos. The book of Judges tells us so. And a faithful restoring to peace, if you think of that book, for a time until what? The people turned to war again. God's people, chosen as they were, demonstrated that they absolutely could not broker peace. They couldn't manage it. Now, such peaceful government, everlasting peaceful rule was still coming, promised through a king who symbolized such righteous rule, David, sealed by way of covenant, 2 Samuel 7. That king's own son, you know him, Solomon, whose very name means what? Peace. He inherited a kingdom of peace, fittingly. The Old Testament shalom embodied peace in every way. By that Old Testament ancient peace, that's exactly what it was. Completeness, wholeness, wellness of all, peace from enemies, peace of mind, peace surrounding, shalom realized under Solomon. Yet that king of shalom, Solomon, would soon what? Turn to war. Taking enemies as wives, worshiping in the place of enemies, and simply being an enemy to the one true God. The legacy would live on, of course, long after Solomon, and the kings that would follow, more often than not, in the line of the king of kings, in the line of the seed that would come, in the line of the chosen kings, each one would turn from peace, often turning to the very enemies of God for their peace. What a picture as you read your Old Testament, isn't it? I'll seek peace with my enemy. That's where I'll find peace. Over and over again. False prophets. Think of Ezekiel 13, Jeremiah 6. They record this, the misleading of people claiming peace when there was no peace. They declared visions of peace, if you recall. And there was no peace. A reminder for God's people of all times that our notions of peace... And we could say this almost every time for us, is it not true? Our notions and definitions of peace at best are confused, and so often they're just simply false. Exile came, of course, a removal of peace, then the restoration of peace, which was a return to the land. There may be the arrival of the promised peace, right? Maybe. A return to the promised land? Maybe. Not yet. As the accounts of Ezra and Nehemiah would show, nothing had indeed changed. Those returned exiles in time choosing what? Rebellion again and again. And that would continue through to the time that the Prince of Peace would come down, take on flesh. 
The Gospels, of course, record that peace brought, that peace brought to God's people, John 14, 27. Peace that he gave, peace that he was. Yet that peace, the Son, the seed promise, despised and rejected by men. Think about that picture in the Gospels in the New Testament, if you will. Peace came down, the embodiment of peace. And in a world at war, it was rejected. In fact, they took the Prince of Peace, they took the peace that was Christ, and they nailed him to a cross. Killed by hands that sought a peace of their own understanding. The Bible reveals that, and it is both a reminder and a caution for us as we begin this new section this morning. False peace, as humanity continues to define and pursue, only leads to more war. Peace is not removing those from your path who block your way. That's not peace. What happens in that situation when everyone seeks to do that? You have war. Peace is not the absence of tranquil, earthly situations or, sorry, the absence of non-tranquil earthly situations. It's not having circumstances be completely serene. As we know, we cannot control circumstances, and we certainly, when we get them for that elusive moment, we can't make them last. And peace is not feeling happy. Peace is not a noiseless moment, a quiet time. It's not a geopolitical treaty. It's not the kids down for a nap or having two people agree on something. That's not peace. None of it is. For sure, listen, those can be a nice and even peace-like experience in a way, but they're not really, truly, biblically peace. For one, they're all fickle and mutable, meaning, again, they do not sustain. They come and they go as quickly as they came. More more importantly, those are not peace because that's not how the Bible defines peace. And beloved, what do we aim to do together here at Westmount? We seek definition from where? The Bible. We go to the Bible to define our terms. Not out there, in here. Those things are not peace because the Bible, as we'll see and as we begin a section, it will clearly define what peace is in Scripture. Beloved, peace is not ultimately, listen, horizontal. Peace is not the state of having no conflict with another human being. How often, how often, we sing the Psalms here at Westmount, how often is the psalmist in trouble? How often is there tumult for the psalmist? And yet, what strikes you when you read the Psalms? They are thinking particularly of some of the Davidic Psalms, at peace. I want you to listen carefully. Here's one of the Psalms we sing here at Westmount. Listen to this tranquility amidst tumult, this peace. Psalm 3, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You would say, David, I can say many things, but you can't have peace. Subscript of that psalm actually says it's Absalom. He's fleeing from his very son who wants to kill him. How can you have peace? But you, O Lord, verse 3, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I think we can muster up to that, can't we? 
In the midst of our tumult, we can say, yes, God, God is there, and we know that that's what we need to say, but can you do this? Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around, and you must say, how? Verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. And then this, verse 8, Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. David's peace, listen, was not in circumstances. I'm always struck when I read that psalm of what the commentary would be. What the counselor, the therapist would say to David in that moment. Your son is running to kill you. Your enemy is surrounding. And where does he turn? Nothing on earth, right? He turns above. And he knew, and did you catch it in verse 8? He turned to and focused on his salvation with that God. That's it. Peace, Westmount, the only true and real peace. Listen, is peace with God. There is no other peace. All other aspects or derivatives of peace, listen, if they have any ring of authenticity to them, must flow from that. Peace with God. You cannot have true, lasting, mercy-laden peace with others. Listen, without first peace with God, it is impossible should be the first diagnostic in dysfunctional relationships. Peace with God, as we will see this morning, is the fruit of being made right with God. First and foremost, a being made right by faith. The way of justification, which we studied in chapters 3 and 4. That followed, remember, an extensive opening of this book where the apostle showed us our innate and practical need for justification. Why? Chapters 1, 2, and 3, because we cannot do it. We cannot do it. So Paul has shown the need for justification. He's shown us the way of justification by faith. And now as we begin this mid-portion of Romans in chapter 5, we will examine the fruits of justification. Just a wonderful section. And the first fruits of being made right, being justified in God's sight is this, peace with God. The fruits of justification, by the way, flow right into the next few chapters of this letter. By fruits of justification, to be clear, we're talking about the implications of the gospel of God, the results, the consequence of being justified by faith. Chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 comprise the middle section of this book. Each will delve into the products, again, the derivatives of a life justified. We'll see in chapter 5 that since we are justified, we now have peace and love and hope. In chapter 6, we'll see that since we are justified, we're no longer bound to sin, but we're slaves of Christ, free to Him. In chapter 7, we'll see that since we're justified, we're free from the law's condemnation, as we just sang. And in chapter 8, that since we are justified, we'll see that we are spirit-filled, secure heirs with Christ. All amazing, rich implications of our justification. Again, this is the next major section of the letter, and it begins this morning. And I pray, 
If you've read ahead or you're tracking in this study, you understand we're only getting started this morning. We can only look at the first few verses of chapter 5. Look at them with me now, these rich verses ahead of us. We're going to consider them, these first five at least, as we, as we begin. And we won't even get all through them today, but we'll look at them in whole to start. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to see these inspired words from you. Let us behold their wonder. Let us understand them and digest them. And Lord, let them flow out of us. You've poured love into our hearts by way of your Holy Spirit, by way of your Holy Spirit. Let us live these truths today, tomorrow, and on, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Look again at verse 1. Serves to, verse 1, really serves as a banner over this entire next section, 5, 6, 7, and 8. It's like a header. Look at it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Therefore, since in light of all of chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. This is, this is in light of all of that. And this we, by the way, when you think about what we've studied, that we, since we have been justified, we're just coming off a section that looks at what that we is, all of faith. So this statement refers to all of those with faith. Since we then, Christian... Since we, Christian, Paul, the Jewish believer, you and me, all of faith, since we have been what? Justified by faith, which we have studied and learned is, is to be made right with God. Chapters 3 and 4. Since that is true of us positionally, this is the fruit, this is the, the consequent reality. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a statement. What a reality. What a truth. And it makes sense if we're slowing down and tracking here because to be justified legally is to be reconciled completely. It's reconciliation to all, top down. That's what true reconciliation means. When the judge declares gavel down not guilty, the criminal is instantly reconciled back where? To society. That's a not guilty that reconciles criminal back to society. And not just to the previous accuser, but to all of society. But even more than that, previous accuser, society. But the judge as well, that's a reconciliation to the judge. Thus, to be justified is indeed to have peace with God. A standing with God, with judge, with all restored. In fact, if we were to give it a a picture as we've been studying and putting it together with all of Scripture, it's like an immediate ticket back to the garden. This is your entry back to the garden that is going to be restored, and you have it. You have it. Now, flowing out of that declaration in verse 1, Paul will unfurl this peace for us. This is what he's going to do. In the immediate verses that follow, verses 1 to 4, he will present to us this 
peace, right into five and even the rest and so on, this peace with God in its various dimensions. There's just so much here, Westmount. These verses, again, uh, I can't say it enough to start this section, are completely full, shot through with so much for us. So much in these opening verses and chapter. Again, rich, important theology. We can't possibly move quickly and cover them too fast. As such, we will not make it through all of that this morning. We're going to move slowly, but we're moving appropriately because we want to glean everything the Word has for us. We need to study and digest these implications. And if I could say one final word to that, those of you a little more concerned with pace at times, why? So I was reading this chapter this week and in preparation for it, and certainly studying it through the week, realizing we have not fully grasped the implications of our justification. We we have not. And listen, beloved, me too. I, I stand up here every time it needs to do a work in my heart before it does anything at all. And can can I submit to all of it? We have not grasped fully the implications of what is going on here in this text. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we need this. Church, what are we going to see in these opening five verses? We will see peace with God that means we stand in a place that we shouldn't. With access to a God that we shouldn't. Peace with God means grace. Christian, we'll see peace with God. That means not just reconciliation, but a return, a return to the glory of God. We have settled, have we not today, Christian? I know many of you are with me. We have settled for lesser so-called glories, have we not? And we don't want to let those glories go. Lesser gardens, lesser things, and we cling tight with all our might. We've settled for lesser glory, if you can even call it glory at all. And yet God promises the Christian a restoration to the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, peace with God. When you have peace with God, think about what we heard Daryl read this morning from Job. It means you have a certain hope, a constancy in your suffering Peace with God means your suffering has purpose. When you walk out of this building today, you will walk into an environment that says, why is there suffering? You will walk into an environment that has no answers to your suffering. But here we will see, particularly next week, the sovereign hand, the purpose and intention in your suffering. All of that... All of that, beloved, in just the five opening verses of this chapter. Miles to go, so sweet and rich, so let's dig in. First product of our peace with God is this, a standing on grace. Look at verse 2, a standing on grace. Look at the first part, actually, of verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Look carefully. Through him, who is him? It's the same hymn that's been in view all throughout this letter, really, the focal point. The same one at the heart of the gospel of God. The same one at the end of verse 1. Look at it, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, we're going to return to Christ later, have more to say, but for now, just note that through Christ, the text says, is access. That's your picture. Whatever is being said here, it's through Christ. This is the access that is also referred to in the book of Ephesians. Consider the book of Ephesians. The context, very similarly to a Gentile environment, many Gentiles like Rome, but Jews there as well, talking about them being together as the church. Listen to Ephesians 2. Listen to this passage very carefully. Therefore, this is what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, so these are Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ. Note their location. You're separated from him alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow. But now, note location, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been what? Brought near by the blood of Christ. And he says this, for he himself is our peace. And he goes on to talk about the wall of hostility being broken down, and so on. Just rich. Listen to this in chapter 3. He's not finished here. Verse 11, this was, all of this as he talks about the glory of Christ in the gospel, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom, in Jesus, we have what? Boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So what is he saying here? For those that are in Christ, we have boldness, we have confidence, we have access. This is the same thing as we think back now on Romans that Paul is saying in this argument. Boldness, access, hostility down, confidence through what? Our faith in Christ, in Christ. And beloved, note that it's faith in him and him alone that grants us access. An access by faith into a grace. So note this, into a position, into a place in which we now stand. This is your environment, Christian, now. If you've been justified, your environment, you are wrapped in, your climate is grace. Now, Westmount, this is what peace with God looks like. And note this, your position is now different. It is very different to a lot of human beings. You do not stand in a place where, as most people do, the wrath of God remains on you. John 3, 36. You do not stand, as Gary reminded us this morning, right, with a place where your sins are on you, where you have a yoke of your sins and a coming punishment for your sins. You don't stand in that place. That's not your place. As such, you do not stand on a footing that you naturally deserve. Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3. If you have peace with God, you've been granted access into a different place. And what is that place? It's a standing on grace. Do we grasp that? It's a place we don't deserve to be. I submit to you. I think you're with me in this. We come as rebels with weeks that would be given as exhibit A's of why we don't deserve that place. Is that not true? We come with a whole host of reasons why we shouldn't be in that place. But by the grace of God, we have access and stand in that place. 
you have peace with God, you've been granted access into a standing on grace, which means a position with God that is a gift, a free gift that is all grace. Now, I think at this point, we connect those dots. Heads would nod and say, yes, I know that Christianity. We do not earn, yet God gives. I know that. However, there is a dimension here of our standing on grace that we do need to recall and pause for a moment to look at. It involves, again, the idea of access. We need God's grace for access. Because here's what we forget often in our daily lives. Sometimes when we get flippant, with our Bible verses and Christianity, we forget why we need access because of who we need access to. Remember our study in Exodus long ago. Turn with me to Exodus 19 for a moment. This is just a reminder. We're not going to linger here very long, but a reminder. God has redeemed his people miraculously through the plagues, right? Delivered them as promised, brought them out to the wilderness to worship him. Now they're here at the mountain. He's going to reveal himself very powerfully to them by way of his law, the Mosaic law. So they're brought out. And this is not, and we don't mean to be trite with this, but it needs to be said, because you can imagine how people would look at that today. It's not a matter of now, Israel, you can hang out with God in the wilderness. You're free from Egypt And let's just do this time in the wilderness. Worship and wander. Drawing near to God here, being with God, relationship with God. Here it is, restoration or to be with him in one sense, to be in relationship, has terms. And why? Because our God is holy. Our God is completely other. Our God is nothing of us. Look at Exodus 19. He reminds the first six verses. You can scan it. He reminds them of what he's done. He's liberated them. He says, obey my voice, verse 5. Keep my covenant. You're my treasured people. Let's pick it up in verse 7. He says this. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. You almost grasp, and we talked about this in Exodus, this is a quick and hasty we will do, right? Not just that the text reveals it, but it's losing sight of who is in front of them. We keep reading, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go. Now look at this. This is what it means for God to come. Go to the people and consecrate them. That means to set them apart today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. Be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Look at this in verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain, the place where God is, the mountain shall be what? Put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Go on and scroll down to 16, just getting the flavor of this scene. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Listen, remember that we will do? So that all the people in the camp trembled. 
When Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in what? Thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then this, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, and look at the warning, lest they break through to the Lord to look to look, and many of them perish. Who is this God? Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord. Why? Lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, simply, what's going on here? They cannot access God. God is completely holy and other and separate to who these Israelites are. This is their God. This is your God. And we would say and should forgive us, God, when we think we approach so flippantly, but we continue... We can, and this is the glory of justification, we have access now, not through mountain limits and such, through a son, the son of God. We have access now, unlike they did back then in one sense, access to this God. Now listen. The need of an intercessor is clear. Look at verse 25 with Moses coming down. And of course, that's in the wake of their impending inability and fear. And do not miss man's inability, the impossibility of sinful man in the presence of a holy God. Don't miss that in this account. That's the point here. Yet Israel will, of course, carry on in God's presence. And you understand, even with the fear and trembling, they still sin. Remember the calf incident. He remains with them through that, and they're protected. Why? Turn to Exodus 34, in the wake of the calf. He says this, when Moses intercedes, reminding us we need an intercessor, God is reminded not only of who he is, but what he's promised. But look at this in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, this is hanging over the entire aftermath of the calf. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. He goes on to talk about how he's also a just God, what he does with the guilty. Here's the point. They stand on grace. Look at the opening. By a God who is merciful and gracious. Those that say only grace and mercy are in the New Testament. This is why Israel remains, because of God's grace and his mercy. This is why they have access to God in Exodus 19, because of God's grace. He's giving them pictures of what they need, limits and so on, but the only reason they have any access, whether it's through Moses or a mountain, is by grace. Again, let's not miss the continuity here in God's word. Grace is the same. Our God is the same. Now turn back to Romans. God never changes. Grace and only grace and all of grace 
is always what is needed for man's access to God. There is no other way. And for sure, we rejoice in this. Grace did come down, right? Grace came down and took on flesh. The Gospel of John, its opening chapter, records it this way, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Grace came down. Access now no longer limited outside a mountain, but granted within a Son. And because it is through the Son, through God Himself, listen, the access is sure. Look at verse 2. This is a grace we have access to and one in which we stand. See that word? One thing the New Testament does amplify for us, listen, doesn't change, is the permanence of grace. That's what's happening here. Here the idea with this grace in which we stand points to ongoing certainty. This is why we love what the words God has given to us. First, there's the word behind it. Look at stand. That word means to establish, to stand firm. That's the word that sits behind it. It is a strong, certain foundation. Two, there's a verbal form in that word. And it's given, we've talked about this verbal form before. It's looking at an action that had happened, right, with the effects that are just ongoing right up to every present time. Nothing can change that. It's beautiful. The results continue. It's perfect. In other words, there's nothing that can remove us from this standing of grace. Christian, do you see that? Nothing can remove you from the place in which you stand. This was true for national Israel in Exodus 19. Listen, the nation's future was secured despite their sin. To that nation, God reminded them, by the way, well after Sinai, this truth of the seed. Think about this, set against Israel's failure after returning to the promised land. Think about this for a moment. Ezekiel 37, verse 24 to 28. This is well after the golden calf and lots of accounts of the sin of Israel. Where you would say over and over again, Israel, you forfeited, you've blown it. Ezekiel 37 Verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall, note the confidence, dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst. How long? It says forevermore. And then this in verse 27. My dwelling place shall be with them. You see that? And I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is an everlasting relationship of peace. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst again, listen, forevermore. This is everlasting access that God is saying to Israel by way of Ezekiel that is by grace, in spite of all that they did in the context, so much in Ezekiel, so much judgment on what Israel's doing, yet also laden with grace. Christian, so it is too with us today, with access by faith. 
into the grace of God in which we stand, a standing we do not deserve, but a standing that is secure. That's what it means to have peace with God, Christian. Peace with God means you have access by faith into a place of grace and nothing can remove you from it. That's the only real peace. That is security. No standing on earth matches it. Two, you also have a return to glory. Look at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2 says, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Look at that. Again, we run so quickly over these verses. We need to stop and consider what it's saying. Notice this doesn't say, what does it not say? That you should rejoice. Do you see that? It doesn't say, in light of these things, you should rejoice. It's not an exhortation. It says simply what that you do. Indicative truth. Why? Well, first of all, this rejoicing is in hope. That's where it's located. That's its domain. And remember, biblical hope is not the same as our earthly hope. It's not our uncertain hope. We've talked about that so much here. We hope for this and that tomorrow. We hope for this weather or that outcome. No, biblical hope is certain because it is hope springing from what? The only certainty. God's person and God's promise. Now that's hope, right? That springs from him. So why could Israel have hope? And why can saved Israelites today still hope? Because the promises of God are certain. Not just Ezekiel 37, Remember at Christmas, Isaiah 25, right? What's coming? We say, behold, this is our God. Zechariah 14, a king over the whole earth. This is the truths given to God's people. And here, what is for all of faith now, for all people of faith now, Jews and Gentiles alike, remember the we, what is the content of this certain hope given in verse 2? Look at it. It's the glory of God. Remember, Back in the garden, what was lost in the garden? The glory of walking with Creator, unashamed, unfettered access to God, that glory of God, being created in His image, that glory of God, unmarred by anything we do, that glory of God, the glory of God, the state of God-likeness that we, humanity, once had created in the image of God to reflect the glory of God. But remember what happened. Adam fell and the image of God was broken. More on that when we get to verse 12, by the way. But for the purposes here at the beginning of the chapter, we're reminded of the reality we've studied to this point. Let's go back to chapter 3, verse 23. Remember this, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short of the glory of God. None can or do live that image fully or rightly. This is all manner of falling short. And we say that because this goes far beyond the presence of disease and decay that takes our body. Some would say, yes, we have a cursed body and we're dying. That certainly is right in one dimension, but it goes far beyond that to all kinds of practical manners of dishonor. This includes the way we use our body and the way we wag fingers and tongues in evil. We fall short of the glory of God. The way we find ways to desecrate our body through ungodly adornments or pornographic habits, we fall short of the glory of God. We regularly 
often without conscience, consume with little thought all manner of things ungodly, unhealthy and unholy, unhealthy food and unholy amusements, and we just keep consuming. We fall short of the glory of God. We actively use our minds to devise wicked plans. We look at our hands and use them to execute those plans. And then we use our feet to run to the next transgression. Yes, we fall short of the glory of God every day. Yet God does not leave us there. Back to chapter 3 for just a moment. Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but listen... For those that are justified, Christian, this is you, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is where? In Christ Jesus. Praise God. Here is this Christ Jesus again. Here returning us to glory, redeeming us. Through Christ we have a redemption and a return. Through Christ we're returned to glory. This is so wonderfully brought together in 2 Corinthians 3. Listen to this passage. Speaking of, we looked at Moses, right, in his intercessory work with God. We went to Exodus. Let's tie that now to Romans and bring it together as Paul does in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, this is to Christians, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day. When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. See what he's saying there? Without Christ, you have no access nor understanding or anything of God. That's what he's saying. But then this. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And listen, and we all with unveiled face, this is our access we just talked about, Listen, beholding the glory of the Lord. So not just access, but glory. And not just glory, listen, are being transformed, ongoing into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, we're not just sitting passively waiting for that train to glory. Every moment of our lives are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. There's another diagnostic. We should be. We should be. In Christ. By the way, as we again come and orient here in this section in Romans, so that we're clear that this is precisely the hope that Paul has in view, the hope of the return to that glory, and that's what he's referring to here. Let's just be reminded, let me give you this, and you can turn with me into Romans 8. This is where the argument is headed. Listen to this. Romans 8, the end of this section, he's going to talk about future glory. Back it up in verse 17 for a moment. He talks about if we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. And then he's going to explain what that looks like. Verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, you see, this is a subjection of all creation, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, and listen, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. What are they groaning for? This is a return to glory. Look at verse 23. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then he's going to end on hope here. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So much here. We, beloved, along with creation, yearn and groan for a return to the garden and to glory. That's what the Spirit of God is testifying within you, a yearning for glory. And again, God just doesn't leave us there in that yearning. He's transforming us in His Son, one degree of glory to another as we get there. How can we grasp this? Beloved, that's the return to glory that awaits us all. Look at the beginning of verse 2. Chapter 5, through him. How can we grasp this? Through him. We need to end here. Again, we can't possibly get to all of this today. Through him. Through him. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since you've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ. That's the way, friends. That's the only way. Christ himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. As has been famously commented over and over again, a more exclusive statement on the right way you will not find. A more exclusive statement on the right way, the right way to life, an abundant life, peace and all, you will not find. But consider it with me now in light of Romans 5 as we opened it today. Peace with God is only, verse 1, through Christ. Through Christ, verse 2, we have access to God by faith into standing grace. Look at verse 9. We will see there that our justification is only how? By Christ's blood. Look at verse 10. We'll see that our reconciliation is only by Christ's death. Then from verse 11 on, we'll see that this Christ alone brought the free gift. In fact, this reality of our justification and our peace with God is bookended throughout this entire section. Look at the end of the chapter. Chapter 5, verse 21. Since so that, this is the work of Christ, what the law is doing and versus grace, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life where? Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace enters, remains, and reigns. Grace that reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at the end of chapter 6. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the end of chapter 7. It says this, thanks be to God through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Our thanksgiving, we talked about this in Romans 1.8. Our thanksgiving is only true thanksgiving if it's through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then at the end of chapter 8, and you know this passage, but we need to note the prepositions in it. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Don't put a period there. The love of God where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Do you see that? That's how the love of God flows, through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is union with Christ, and beloved, you are either in Christ or you are not. Again, I piggyback off what Gary said. You're in one of two positions sitting in that seat right now. You're either in Christ or you're not. And we don't take this lightly. It's like pregnancy, right, ladies? You're either pregnant or you're not. You're not kind of pregnant. You are either, listen, in Christ or you are not. Do we all need this this morning? You are either in Christ or you are not. You're not partially. As such, peace with God is not a state of mind, but a son of man. Peace with God is a person, Christ Jesus the Lord. And more pointedly, peace is your position in that Christ. That's it. Why is this important? So many ways just said, I want to dispel with you, because I have these two, these notions of this peace as we close. It means peace is not nations getting along. Peace is not just the avoidance of nuclear war. That's not peace. That's not peace. Peace is not people sitting cross-legged singing kumbaya. It's not peace. Peace is not happy thoughts. It's not. Peace is not still silence. It's not. Peace is nothing controlled, that it, calm, that is a circumstance on earth that you're in complete control of. That's not peace. That's an illusion. No, none of those are peace as defined by the book that's in your hand. Peace with God is Christ. There's the period. Peace with God is Christ. To be in him, which is all of you in him. You don't have a leg in yourself and a leg in Christ. Peace with God is all of you in all of him. And we press that to close because maybe you're struggling with peace today. Maybe you are. And I'm with you and I would submit to you that I think a few of you are struggling with peace today. And the question is begged. If you find so elusive the notion of peace, are you in Christ? Are you in him? You would say, I'm in him. What about your focus? You find peace so elusive today, can you not rip your eyes away from the horizontal? Are you fixated on the things around you? The things people say, the things people do. Where's your focus? Because peace with God, if you're truly in Christ, means this. It doesn't matter what's going on around you. You have peace, true peace, because you've been made right with the one who's over you. That's peace. But nothing else. Peace with God means you've been made right by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1.20 as such, you are justified. You've been made right. You have access now by faith, now and forever, to Almighty God, the same one on that mountain at Sinai. You have access. 
now and forever through Christ. No other way. Through Christ. That's peace with God through Christ in the cross. And that's where, beloved, we must keep near. Let's pray. Father, we do beg you, for those of us in this room that are not in Christ, not in your Son, that you might do that work that only you can do. We cannot. We beg you, Lord, for those in the room that are in Christ with eyes fixated across the horizon, Lord, that you would help us all return our eyes to you. Oh, God, help us in these times, in this season. As we know, Father, that we have no peace without the peace not only that you give, but you give through your Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, return us there now, we pray. Amen.